Welcome to I Want to Put a Baby in You, a podcast exploring reproductive technology and life-changing stories. Here are your hosts, Jennifer White and Ellen Trackman. Welcome. In a true display of sisterly love, I am Jennifer White, and I'm introducing you to Ellen Trackman, who said, no, you start because she said, she said, no, you start because it's awkward to start. So she leaves it to me. This is what sisterly love is all about. And we have to- Maybe it's just awkward when I start, but it's like really smooth and it's great when you do it. So it's just, it's just me. You're not awkward. I am. Uh, no, I, yeah, anyway. <laughs> that was great. Okay, but so, we have yeah. a very exciting anyway. guest today who has, is a true world traveler. I mean, she grew up I in know, South right? America. She's lived everywhere, lived in the United States for a while. When we were interviewing her, she was in the Middle East, living in the Middle East. Um, she just moved there, I think, too. Is that right? So, yeah. Yeah, just got settled in. So, Jen, I feel like this is very timely for you to say, if you could live anywhere you wanted – where would it be? And it's especially timely because your spouse is military and every couple years you have kind of this waiting to find out your next location and you're in that waiting mode right now. So I know you've had we like lists and, mode. you know, inspecting places. And didn't you decide, didn't you get like your daughter choose this time? We let her have control of the order and you're of moving the list to Disneyland. with limited... No. <laughs> Yay! Yeah, no, we we had a list of five. Um, she was allowed to put in order that list, and we both had a number one that was not the same as her number one. So the number one is still what we wanted it to be. <laughs> this is the uh, what happens when you're an adult. But yeah, no, we definitely are. There's like our house becomes like full of PowerPoint presentations and, and you know all kinds of things as we try to figure out where where we want to go next. And of course, in true military fashion, it will scrap it all and. None of the choices that we made will actually be presented to us, um, you know, because that's just the way it is. Um, yeah, no. And if I could live anywhere, oh gosh, I really loved living in London. I would move back to London in a heartbeat. Uh, in the U.S., we are trying to be somewhere where there are mountains, which would be really lovely. Um, so either uh, we're we're talking about Utah would be a really great place to live, or oh, oh uh, also I'm raising my East. hand. I know a place that has mountains. Hmm. What? Where Where has mountains? <laughs> we have a few here, by the way. In Denver? Over 52 mountains, over 14,000 feet high. Oh, so, oh I totally had some, missed that some, state. Yeah, you're right. Some there for you. Yeah, I mean, we also had some constraints as to what was available versus where we wanted to go. Uh, where would you like to move if you could move anywhere? Oh, super boring. I'm pretty happy here. Also, packing and moving, I really hate that. So I'm just going to stay right here forever. That's the plan. Uh, okay, you're going to die in that house? <laughs> yes. Unless someone else moves <laughs> me <laughs> or they burn okay. it down. So I don't have to worry about moving stuff. I mean, that is the nice thing about military moves is that they pack it all, including your trash in your trash cans. Uh, They will, if you do not empty the trash cans, move it as well. Uh, So aside from her world world traveling, the warning to our listeners about this episode is Michelle's story is um, pretty intense. So one, get the tissues, but two, it's also long to tell the whole story. So we've broken it up into two episodes. So this is part one. And in part two, we'll give a quick recap of what people might have missed if they just jump into part two. Welcome, Michelle Minucci, to the show, author of The Surro Fairy. And Michelle, you have such a inspired, I mean, you have such a personal story yourself that's really grown into something else that's inspired others. So we're very excited to talk to you and go into depth about your story and all that you've done. Welcome. <laughs> thank you. Thank you both, Jen and Ellen, so much. I'm excited to be a guest today and uh, I'm excited to see what comes of it. Yeah, definitely. So, so start. Michelle, yeah. yeah. Do you want to give a little background about yourself and kind of where you were in life when you first thought about surrogacy? Oh, I was going to yeah. say, actually, go go back further, Ellen. Hold on. Wait, sorry. Go back to your childhood, though. Talk about growing up, because I know that some of that really influenced you. So. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So um, I was born and raised in New York uh, just around seventh grade. I actually moved to South America with my parents. Um, oh, wow. as, as you may have read um, in my story out on my, on my website, 
in my dad's mid thirties, he had complete renal failure. Basically only one of his two kidneys was at 10%. Um, and that was quite a burden on my family. My mom was the sole breadwinner at the time. My sister was just heading off to college. I had a four-year-old brother at the time. And so my parents made the best decision they could at the time to move to Colombia, South America, where um, my mom would be able to take care of her aging parents, quality of life, um, all of that. And so my family actually quasi separated. My sister stayed in school in New York while my brother and I, you know, ventured off to South America. And so I, I completed high school, started college out there, and then at 19 decided to come back to the States on my own to, to pursue college and life wow. thereafter. Um, but to your point, yes, having my father's um, illnesses throughout his years, because it wasn't only just his renal failure later on, it was diabetes and colon cancer and so forth. Um, that just oh, wow. left a, a big impact for me. But the renal failure was actually the the game changer, if you will. Um, he was on dialysis for a number of years. And that one call that I think everyone who's waiting for a transplant waits for. Uh, one night in the middle of the night, I remember being actually in Connecticut with my sister, staying over at um, my uncle's house. And my mom calls in and she says, we got the call. I'm taking your dad to the hospital. Not one, wow. but two. So wow. that that was a miracle in and of itself. Not only one, but two. And the unfortunate piece of it was that it was, from what we were told, the death of a three-year-old. And, oh. you know, for me, that's something that hits home because my, my son is actually four right now. Um, oh, my goodness. And, and it's something that's just been with me um, growing up. But definitely in, in these last couple of years, um, as I became a mom myself. And so um, at that time, my parents did ask to meet the donors um, and they wanted it to actually remain closed. And we never had that opportunity to give a verbal thank you. And um, well, fast forward, that, that stayed with me. And years later, as I became a mother, um, it played on me. I, I want to do something more. I want to give back. Um, and my husband, I mean, I have to say he's, he's been amazing. He's known my whole life story and is my biggest fan and supporter and essentially my rock. Um, he is not a fan of, uh, organ donation. And so oh, interesting. Yeah, not enough. What, <laughs> what's his what's his thinking that he that he opposes it? So his his background is in uh, he's been military and law enforcement, and so he's he's been around the block and and has seen a lot of things. And um, both personally and professionally, his feelings are that you know should I go, he'd like for me to go fully <laughs> and complete. And so um, that's that's his opinion, but he does respect yeah. mine and knowing where my sentiments come from. Yeah. And so, you know, once I, I I brought it up in terms of, well, actually, let me backtrack. We always sure. thought, you know, if we had our kids, uh, when we decided, uh, when we got married and decided to think about our the size of our family, we joked around once we were actually on our honeymoon in Fiji and said, if we had a boy and a girl, would we want a third child? And if we mm. did, would it be our own? And simultaneously without ever talking about it before, we both agreed that we would want to adopt. And so uh, our, our thoughts of giving back and just being part of, of the community as a whole um, start stemmed actually from the adoption process. However, we do move around based on his job. And so that's, that's going to be a hard road. It's not off the table actually just yet, but it was something that we knew couldn't happen quite immediately. And so when I had the conversation with him and look, I'd love to do something and give back while I'm still alive and breathing, (laughs) I will still be, you know, an organ donor. It is on my license. However, (laughs) I want to do something while I'm consciously well and alive. And so the organ donation piece um, was off the table because his theory behind it is, you know, you don't know how you're going to heal. We still have young kids. I still need you fully together. Um, And so I can respect that. I get that. 
And so surrogacy came about and I said, well, what do you think? And uh, we spent about two years actually researching and, wow. and we're both very surrounded. Good for you. We looked online, we looked at every case that had gone well, every case that had hiccups along the road. What's worst case scenario? What are we up against? Yeah. You know, that's, and, that's so fascinating. I've heard, we've heard lots of stories about people who chose to be surrogates and it's almost always like, I knew someone going through infertility. I thought I could do this or, you know, I love being pregnant to seem like an amazing way to get back. This is the first time I've heard it from, I wanted to be an organ donor. And this was like the next closest thing to giving back. That's that's amazing. (laughs) And so, you know, what's interesting about it is that um, life has a funny way of presenting things to you. We started this conversation way back um, in 2015, shortly after my, my son was born and we were living in Las Vegas at the time. But end of the year, we moved to California because of my husband's job. I took on a whole new job as well. I had a couple of uh, teammates under me and one of the gals that actually reported to me, uh, work, she worked part-time and her other part-time job was actually as an embryologist oh. Um, oh. or something scientific yeah. to the degree over at a, at a clinic, at an IVF clinic in San Diego. And I was over at her house just for coffee and somehow this conversation came up and I said, you know, I'd, I'd love to do something like this. And she said, are you serious? And I said, yeah, why? And that's when she said, well, if you're ever really considering this, I have the perfect people that you need to talk to. Oh, wow. I went home that perfect. day. <laughs> oh, go yeah. ahead. The perfect people, like people who want to be parents or the clinic or what kind of people were, was she thinking of? In terms of a referral to a surrogacy agency. The clinic as well, because she worked for the clinic, but she did recommend for me to speak with an agency just to get um, more information. And and I'm grateful that she did, because here's the thing. I was brand new into this. I didn't even know where to kind of begin in terms of who should I talk to? There's so many agencies out there. Mm-hmm. There's also so many people that go independent. You know, we call them indie journeys. True. Yep. And for me <laughs> yep. um, and my husband, because this was a, a mutual decision, again, us being, you know, cerebral and wanting to have all the information up front, it, it was a time, it was a moment where I wanted to have a little bit of handholding in terms of guidance, right? Makes sense. Um, yeah. it, it's, it's, I understand why so many surrogates thereafter choose to go independent um, and intended parents as well. But for me, I have to say I felt very comfortable going with an agency the first time around because I'm learning the ropes. And and it was just very comfortable having someone give me that guidance, explain everything. Um, and, that, and that in and of itself, that interview process was quite interesting. <laughs> As I say all the time, you don't know what you don't know, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. <laughs> what? And I'm sure people are curious, what stood out the most from that interview process? Like what question kind of surprised you? Here's my favorite piece. Um, for one, that I was there so long. Uh, <laughs> I thought it would be, you know, here's a meet and greet for about an hour. And we spent yeah. a, a good, uh, maybe at least five hours that day. Uh, wow. For that's a long time. It was. It was an entire day. We got to meet the staff, which was fascinating. It was great. And everyone explained, you know, their roles. And it was really That's just cool. comfortable. Really, it was almost like friends and family. You know, it's a whole soiree. Yeah. But um, the psychological piece in and of itself mm. took almost three hours, uh, both yeah. for me and my husband. Oh, okay. oh, so you had your psych you had your psych screening that day. Okay. Okay. And that, that was sense. that was kind of unexpected. But, hey, we're here. So let's do it. You know, go big or go home. Um, but there was pieces that were combined, both my husband and I, there were parts just for him, just for me. And one of the things that they, they kind of laughed at me because I had emailed a lot of questions. I had texted and setting it all, all up. Oftentimes, surrogates um, just connect with the agencies virtually. It was very important for me and for my husband to physically go to their office. I mean, they do have a physical yeah. office in San Diego, meet the team and just really get a sense uh, for who they were before, you know, I went two feet in. That's smart. Mm-hmm. So oh, any, so, any so really crazy question? questions? Yeah. I mean, I can, I can tell you my crazy question. So I, on these like psych evals, there's like one question that's like, 
do you see things that other people don't see? And I think, yeah, I'm pretty observant. Okay. Yeah. And they're like, wait, wait, wait. that's not what they mean. That's not what they mean. Yeah. Okay. Do you now? Anyway. <laughs> no, I'm, ob- you I'm see observant, you know? Yeah. Oh, no. Okay. No, I don't. I guess I don't. Okay. Anyway, what? so what questions did they ask you that you were surprised by or thought were funny? Yeah, I'd have to say two. One was actually uh, my relationship with my mother. And there were very specific questions about my mom. Mm. And I was like, oh, yeah. that's interesting. Why? And I'm like, well, let me tell you how I really feel. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then I, I really got to thinking after I left, you know, where is that going? But I could see why. But what really actually uh, hit me by surprise where I did ask for a couple of minutes to pause and speak privately to my husband was okay. right around what high level points I would want in my contract, right? You know, how many embryos are you going to transfer? Are you willing to carry yeah. twins? What are the big things for you? And it came around to reduction and termination. And that's always, you know, a tough yeah. point for people. And right. I was convinced I knew everything that I would want. And I was like, no reductions, you know, no terminations. I don't really think that, you know, that's for me. And the specific question came to be around, or actually I was told if I was unwilling to reduce and the parents wanted to reduce and the pregnancy would move forward, should this child be born with a illness or something that was life-changing that would be for the entire lifespan, we would be financially held liable and responsible for this. Ooh. Hmm. Whoa. Whoa. That's surprising. Dun, dun, dun. Exactly. Oh, <laughs> and so everyone kind of stopped it in their tracks. And then we said, you know, Joe and I looked at each other, my husband and I, and, and we looked at the director of psychology who was actually performing the eval. And we said, really? That was something in all of our research that hadn't come up. And so we ended up having that conversation. And here I was pinned to a wall going, wow, um, here's something that morally, ethically, you know, is kind of going against what I thought I was prepared for. How badly, you know, do I want to move forward? Do I back out? Do I continue? And so after a pause, we reconvened and it was, is there a middle point? Is there a middle ground under what circumstances? I wouldn't want to reduce for gender. I wouldn't want to reduce for something that wasn't ultimately maybe life-threatening or medically bigger than something that we could all handle, right? Um, And so the good news was that there were options and we were able to go through very specific points under which I would be comfortable reducing or having a termination if there was something really medically necessary. And so we did find a compromise. And fast forward, the good news is that I was never put in that position. um, And the IP didn't have to suffer that as well, because, you know, no one really wants to go through that anyway, even if it is a conscious choice. Well, and and hopefully they matched you with an IP that even if you had been faced with the worst, that they were on the same page with you. That I... That is my hope that you had a good agency that did that. You know, that's kind of the point there. So that's why they pin those questions down so so much so that they can find that. Absolutely. And that is something that is so important. And, and as I work along the Facebook groups and other social media groups where there are wonderful women who are always posting and asking the questions, that's something that you'll often see other surrogates giving advice as well. And really, you know, right. matching is so important. Really voice your thoughts and your opinions ultimately what's in the confines of those four corners in the contract is really what goes. And so don't go back. Yep. Good advice. Very good advice. Yeah. Be a good advocate for yourself. Absolutely. That's perfect advice. So you found a match then. I did. So how, how did that go? Um, So the first call that I received actually was for a couple um, where one of the IPs was HIV positive. And although they do perform sperm washes and all of that, both my husband and I chose um, to not move forward with this couple, although we we did wish them, you know, the best. The second call that I received was for a single mother um, who lived about 60 miles away from me. So that was pretty neat because we were kind of uh, told that 
the likelihood is that there would be international IPs um, or just the long distance. So it was mm-hmm. it was really cool to actually meet in person. And so that's exactly what yeah. we did. We met at a, at a Starbucks. Um, a coordinator from our agency was there, both uh-huh. my husband and I. And so we sat for about a good hour or so. And I have to say, we hit it off from the very beginning. It was oh, just conversation in every which direction from vacation places, you know, what do you like to yeah. eat? She um, already had an older son, a, a preteen from her previous marriage and had been working on um, having another baby for a solid six years. So it's been a long road for her. Um, and surrogacy was just her last option in her words to me. And she said, you know, I really want this so badly. And, and this is what I'm what I'm up against. Here's what I'm looking for. You guys seem great. You seem amazing. And so we met on a Sunday, I want to say. And two days later, um, the agency called me back and said, you know, she wants to match. She loved it. And I said, well, I do too. Where do we yeah. start? And uh, yeah, yeah, it was really, really great. So where did you go? Where did you start? So (laughs) so where did we start? So shortly after that, so that was, um, let me remember, that was March actually of 2016. I I did have a trip planned to New York. Uh, Our families are, are out there for May, so for a good three weeks. And so that was just something that we needed to coordinate because beginning a cycle, um, going to the doctor and, and doing all of that, you kind of need a couple of, of weeks straight. And um, we didn't want the interruption of my trip. And so the, there's a saying, hurry up and wait, right? In in the surrogacy world. Yep. And so it was, we both yes. wanted to, to just start, you know, the next day. Um, but we chose to actually wait for me to start meds after um, coming back from my trip. So we actually waited until June. So in the interim, you have all the contract negotiations, the back and forth. We weren't allowed to speak to each other um, until contracts were finalized. And so she was adorable and she would, yes, yes, that was a rule and a stipulation. And so what she would do is she would send notes to my coordinator, they would mail it to me and it was like pen pals, it was adorable. That's cute. Um, It was, it was, I saved, I saved all of them. Um, and so once I'm, I'm in New York, you know, in the middle of family functions, we had like three things going on, signing contracts, getting them notarized, seeing if we could actually do this because I was already in another state and, you know, there's all these rules and regulations contingent upon where you are. And so, um, once I got back, we, we started, you know, my cycle, my intended mother, um, was such a blessing, I have to say to me, because she had already experienced so much of the actual process. She knew what mm-hmm. meds, how much she asked all the right questions. And so for me, it felt really great to have someone who knew what they were doing, particularly when we had so many frustrations with our clinic. Oh, I mean, literally the day yeah. of I'm supposed to start meds at like 10 a.m. It's 9 a.m. They haven't arrived. And I'm like, oh. what's going on? Oh, my God. Um, you know, then it was I, I was told to have injections, but then I was sent suppositories and she's like, no, but I really want injections and here's why. And so we actually ended up doing a lot of our own legwork um, those early months with the clinic. And that was a little bit of, of a frustration, not only for me, because at the time I was working full time. And so every break that I had, every chance that I had, I'm making calls on the side and figuring mm-hmm. things out. But I also felt for her because In my mind, she's already been going through this process for six years, right, of of having another child, and it hasn't been working out. And now he or she is taking another leap of faith um, to have, you know, this journey begin with me. And Mm -hmm. at a most critical and sensitive time, it felt very transactional from the clinic's part. I mean, and thank goodness that she and I had a great relationship but it was really frustrating to know that we were kind of in the hands of the professionals who are supposed to be there. Um, and it just felt like everything was half-assed and, and pardon my French, you know, that oh, we had to, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that we had to call them, be on top of them. Um, and I just feel there, there needed to be a level of sensitivity, maybe a level of compassion. And it's not to say that they don't have it, but it just added to the frustration. 
And some of these things have stayed with me, which is what um, really motivates me day to day to to do what I'm doing with Sorrow Fairy, the brand. And we'll talk more about that later. But the, the motivation behind the mission behind of what it is that I aim to do, because I, I want there to be more heart beyond the hearts of the IPs and the surrogates. Yeah. You hear professionals right. getting compassion fatigue where they just you know, had so many patients with devastating stories that, you know, for their own protection, they just start kind of blocking it out, which is really hard and sad for the patients who don't feel like they're being treated the way they should. Absolutely. And, and, you know, for me, I I do try to take a a step outside of it. Right. I I'm, I'm a coach as well in, in my profession. And it's one of those of seeing things from different perspectives. Um, but no one wants to feel like they're going through the DMV, right? <laughs> it's that experience. I think we all have to have a moment of checking ourselves and knowing, you know, wh- where am I and what's the service that I'm providing? Because here's the deal. We're dealing with, with people's money and we're dealing with people's babies, right? This isn't a widget. This isn't an iPhone. It's not transactional. And so that has to be the forefront of, why everyone gets up and does what they do if they're going to stay in this field. Yeah. So how yeah. did it go? Oh, seamless, you. seamless transfer, seamless pregnancy. Tell us about it. Uh, <laughs> seamless was not a word that fit oh. in our vocabulary during our journey. <laughs> it was quite the opposite. You know, if everything, uh, if we could get curveballs thrown in, it was, it was insane. Um, so like I said, we had start, I had started the process, right? End of 2016, talking to the agency, so forth. We're now in spring of 2017. My first transfer was July, so summer of 2017. And up until that point, things were, were good. We were happy. We were motivated, even with all the kinks in between. I go ahead and uh, go through the transfer. That went phenomenal. Go home, rest up. And how, how many embryos did you transfer? Sorry, I'm just going to totally, totally ask that question. We right had now. agreed to one. We had agreed to one uh, okay. embryo transfer and a girl. Okay. Um, my IM okay. specifically wanted a girl. So, all right, we we get through the process. We're motivated. Of course, you spend those next 10 days, 12 days anxiously awaiting. And the the one thing is often, uh, often that surrogates get anxious about is you know, taking the pregnancy test at home mm. and you'll hear, all, you'll hear all stories. Surrogates who did, did you, <laughs> did you, I did with her permission. <laughs> that was what I was about to say. Surrogates who do it with or without permission. I did want to be, uh, come from a place of integrity and we held back a couple of days until my, I am texted me and she said, you know, should we do this? And I was like, up to you. And she's like, let's do it. And so I said, how am I going to give this announcement? <laughs> you know? And so I did take um, two pregnancy tests and they were positive. So I was thrilled and I said, I'm going to make this really sweet for her. So I went and I bought a can of Prego sauce and put the pea stick next to it and just sent her this picture. <laughs> so kind of cheesy, but, you know, I really wanted to make these moments really special for her. However, um, I did have to go to L.A. For, for another coaching course that weekend, and we had agreed that I would test again. And that morning I got up and I tested and it said I was not pregnant. And I'm like, that's really weird. What do you mean? I was pregnant like yesterday. <laughs> and um, Monday, so thereafter, I, I go get the blood work. And sure enough, um, it ended up being a chemical pregnancy. So that was pretty brutal, pretty devastating. Um, man, I felt like crap. I felt defeat. I felt failure, uh, a feeling that was foreign to me. You know, I make babies. I was great at making babies. That's one of the, (laughs) that's one of the hardest things I see about surrogates is that they're not, they generally haven't endured loss. And so if there is a loss during, you know, during their surrogacy journey, that that is the first time they've endured that. And it's a really hard thing, you know, because you're, you're learning too, and you're grieving too. Absolutely. And what was interesting was that my IM was more of a moral support to me than I feel I was to her. Interesting. And, yeah. I, and I felt like, man, I really got to step up my game. Like, <laughs> 
I, I was, I was like, are you okay? Like, you know, I'm so sorry. And I, I felt the need to be very apologetic. And she's like, no, I'm kind of used to failure. And then I felt like it was another dagger in me <laughs> because it, it was just awful. And so the, the thing is we decided to, to move forward with another cycle. We're like putting out all the energy and sure, you know, we're going to rock this. So the second time around now we were scheduled for a transfer in October. Things were going really well. All of a sudden, a week before, I start bleeding. I'm like, oh, what's going on? It was literally at like 1.40 in the morning. And the reason I remember this is because I was going to get up at 5 and go to another course in L.A. that weekend. And I was like, it's a little early. Let me see what happens. Maybe, you know, I don't know. I'll ask as on my way because I really have to make it to L.A. And... I started feeling massive cramps, a lot of pain. Now I'm driving three hours to LA on my own at like five in the morning. I'll never forget this. I couldn't, I was about 10 minutes away from the hotel, but I couldn't take it anymore. And I said, I got to pull over to this gas station and I get to this gas station and TMI, but I am, (laughs) I'm bleeding a lot. Like I'm like, wow, I'm really just, I might die at this gas station here in the middle of LA. <laughs> yeah. Did you oh have God. a shuttle? Did you call 911 or were you closed? No, I didn't. I, I, you know, I get that asked a lot and, and I said, uh, I know I probably should have, but I didn't want to be all dramatic. Oh. So I said, Let me just get to the hotel. I'm, I'm 10 minutes away. Yeah. As long yeah. as I get to the hotel, make the right calls. And if anything, at least I know people there. I was going with a couple of colleagues and I would just feel better being at a, at a safe place. And so, so scary. I made it to LA. I had already emailed um, the clinic, I had emailed my agency, my coordinator, and I had texted my IM and I'm like, here's what's going on. I'm not sure. Um, but Hey, I'm making this course. I think I could keep it together. And so I did a couple of hours later, you know, I get the call and they go, we have to cancel the cycle. Your body's shutting all the meds. That, that day was probably the hardest day. If I were to say throughout the whole journey, um, ironically, I, I remained in my course and as I walked in, because that I took that call during a break and I walked in and I was all frazzled, putting my stuff together. My instructor decides to randomly pick me out of a room oh. of 27 other people. Oh, right. And he's like, Hey, Michelle, like, do you mind being, you know, up front and we could demo like a coaching session? And you're like, uh, yes, I, I do mind. I do mind. <laughs> My jaw just dropped and everyone's just kind of looking and, you know, it's just not right to say, no, you just don't do that. (laughs) I'm like, sure. Can I tell you that the name of the course was called process and it's all about processing your emotions. Oh my goodness. So I sat in front of 26, 27 other people and uh, the questions just start coming at me. And before you know it, I lose it. I'm bawling, bawling. (laughs) And everyone else in that room is bawling. My instructor and everyone in my classmates. And I'm like, well, actually, funny thing you called on me. Here's what just happened. And as hard as that was, I was extremely grateful for that moment because it did help me process exactly what was happening with me. And, um, that night, I did not speak to my IM. I mean, I only relayed a message with my coordinator. And, and I think we both kind of needed to stay in our space for that that night. And when I got back home, um, she and I did get on a call. And I was nervous because I didn't know if she would want to move forward. I mean, we've already spent all these months. We had also agreed to a maximum of three tries. And... With the condition that if either one wanted to back out at any point in time, we could. And somewhere along the line, she had kind of mentioned that before. And she's like, I don't really know if it doesn't work out this time if I really want to move forward. So when we got on the call, I already thought that she was going to tell me we're not moving forward, right? But it actually ended up being the other way around. She said, listen to me. You're my girl. In other words, she goes, if if this isn't going to work with you, I'm dropping surrogacy altogether. Oh, wow. No pressure. (laughs) 
And wow. I love the compliment, but no pressure. And you weren't thinking about breaking the match or it's not going. No, not at all. Not at all. At, at this point, there was so much invested yeah. in terms yeah. of the relationship that we had built up until this point as well. Because we would just get on our call and talk about our lives, our kids, what's happening, what are you doing this weekend? So we really were just building this relationship at the same time, um, obviously trying to have a journey move forward. Uh, that conversation ended up being a game changer because she said, what if next time we transfer two embryos, would you be up for it? And so that was outside of our contract, out of what we had agreed. And I said, okay, um, I think so. You know, give me a minute. Like I'm going to talk to my husband, but yeah, you know, go big or go home. At this point, this is our last chance. We're going to give it all we've got. And so we did, we moved forward. We scheduled our next cycle and we did have a double embryo transfer. Sure enough, I end up pregnant with twins. Uh, <laughs> like, come on, how come the singletons uh, work? What? <laughs> I was gonna say, I'm gonna stand on my soapbox right here and say double embryo transfer does not increase success rates, just chances uh, of twins, right? <laughs> I agree, I agree. And you know what, we, we did know that. And it's just one of those that, Everyone thinks it's not going to happen to them, right? Right. right. And so right. for me, when I accepted, I fully understood what that meant. Yeah. And my husband and I would joke and we'd go, you know, I have a knack for random things happening to me. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> and so he's like, you know, it's going to end up in a twin pregnancy. And I'm like, probably. I think for her, it was that hope of at least one sticks, right? Yeah. Right. And and sure enough, it was both. And so I spent wow. the journey going, oh, my God. Well, you know, seek any, you know, asking you shall receive <laughs> twofold. Um, but what came thereafter was completely unexpected. And. Right. So how was the pregnancy? So for us, really, I, I know we'll kind of like chunk this a little bit into, sure, sure. <laughs> into pieces because it's a pretty amazing story. Um, so how was the actual pregnancy? The pregnancy went well for what could happen and go wrong with multiples or when carrying multiples. I have to say it was awesome. Um, fatigue, of course, very early on, much more than my own singletons, my own keepers, my own two kids. But um, overall, it was one of those where you understand when you're carrying twins or triplets, multiples in general, that one may underdevelop as the pregnancy, you know, moves forward that you might lose one. One of the things that was not my favorite was that the, every appointment that we had early on and probably up to 16, 20 weeks, my intended mother asked often, you know, what's the chance of losing one? What's the chance of losing one? or one underdeveloping? And I understand that she was cautious. And in her words, she'd, she'd have this one term. She's like, I'm cautiously optimistic, which she would say it often. And I'm like, you got to coin that term. But for me, it often felt like she was seeking failure. She was seeking for something to go wrong. And at times I'd understand. And at times it'd be really frustrating. Um, and I would share that with my coordinator and, and even with her at times I'm like, look, I'm all about positivity. Like, I don't want any of that bad juju. Um, but I, I never fully understood why that was. Now I have my own thoughts and theories. I'm not sure if they're right or not, but it was just, you know, something that was uncomfortable. And these are the things that happen throughout the journey, right? I mean, relationships change. Ultimately, it's, uh, I joke, it's you meet someone and, hey, uh, let's have a baby, right? <laughs> while, while we're still dating and getting to know each other. And so... I, I call it the most awkward blind date ever. And at the end, you asked somebody to have a baby. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's, that's how I coined match meeting. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. And so that, that was just something um, early on. The other piece of it was it brought me back to that moment about reduction, Right. Yeah. I knew I was thinking that when you're saying that. Yeah, I, I knew how much she wanted 
one child and she wanted a girl specifically. Um, so that was a conversation I did have with my coordinator. And I said, you know, what is she thinking? Where is she at? What? Do you know what gender both of those embryos were that you guys transferred? One boy and one girl. One boy and one girl. Correct. Okay. And so that's what triggered that question for me, because mm-hmm. I said, would she ask me to do this? Technically, she could. Would I have to follow suit? Right. But you had talked about very clearly at the beginning that you would not reduce, especially for gender. Correct. So thank goodness that that was, you know, brought up to me and and outlined very early on in that day. And I know that in some cases, you know, other surrogates and intended parents don't have this level of detail. Um, You know, one of my opinions is uh, a surrogate immediately gets handed basically a, a draft. Most of them look the same. And it really is up to you and you have a level of responsibility to to get into the specifics. Every Everyone is different. And so I'm grateful that I did have that opportunity. Um, and so I said, look, it's not for gender. Plus, it would it would be too early to determine the gender. Um, even, how should I say this? We, we did know, but I at that that we had a boy and a girl, but I was told we wouldn't be able to know which one was which so early on. I'm not sure if that is medically accurate or not, but up still at the 12 week mark, it it would be reducing blindly pretty much. And so we felt pretty safe. My agency was telling me that I should feel really safe, you know, comfortable that that wouldn't be the case. And I also didn't think that it would be like her to just make that decision like that. Um, But those weeks were really hard for me because I would wake up every day and go, you know, is today the day? Am I going to get a call today? Is someone going to ask me something today? Uh, so when I hit the 12 week mark, I breathed a little, when I hit the 16 week mark, I breathed some more at 20 weeks. I'm like, all right, you know, we're doing this, uh, because there was no medical condition at that point that would cause, um, a reduction or a termination. And so fast forward pretty much the rest of the pregnancy, the only, um, highlights was, you know, at, at six months shortly after the that glucose test, I'm told I had, you know, just a, a little bit of anemia, which is common with, with twins. And so basically, you know, pump up eating Cheerios, apparently cereal, um, and just some iron and stuff. I'm like, all right. Uh, moving forward, just around 24 weeks, it, it was summer. I was northern San Diego. It's hot. Yeah. <laughs> Let me yeah. and, and I'm carrying twins. And so um, I was exhausted, to say the least. I could hardly breathe, uh, so what it felt like. And they did put me on modified bed rest. And my doctor's goal was, at that point, we need to make 24 weeks. We need to make 30 weeks. You have to make 34 weeks, you know, as best possible. We need to make sure that you're in optimal conditions to ensure that the babies are at least five pounds each and that we could really get as far as we can. And so there, there it began. Um, summer was hard. My husband's away at times because of work. In between, um, unfortunately, we had a death in the family. And that was, that was hard. That was June, actually. And my mother was scheduled to come stay with me in July. My mom splits her time between South America and sometimes New York or visits me. Fortunately, she's able to travel. And I had to cancel her flight because she had to go attend to her brother's death in South oh, America. Wow. What a rough time. Oh. So I was nervous. And you, and you of course can't travel, right? Because right. I had actually and bed rest and everything else. Yes. Yeah. Cause I had actually already met the guideline for traveling, right? I, I had it, I couldn't go after 20 weeks and much less internationally. Um, and, and I don't think I would have done the international trip anyway. But what was mostly hard about it was I couldn't be there for my mother. I couldn't be there for my family. Um, and, and I grieved at home on my own. And my IM did a great job at just checking in with me. So did my agency. Of course, you know, I felt the need to relay that I would do well, that I would do everything in my power to remain healthy and remain in a good emotional place. Um, so that it wouldn't impact the pregnancy. I've always felt it 
to be a duty to just make sure that she was okay, knowing that I was okay, if that makes sense. Um, nonetheless, you know, hard, and it's just things that happen in, in your journey. Our journey had taken already so much longer that we anticipated. Um, as we get closer to the 30-week mark-ish, um, my doctor tells me, look, you need to be closer to the hospital. I lived about an hour away from the hospital. Oh, wow. And if you're caught in traffic, we would joke and say, you can't, you can't go into labor at three in the afternoon. Yeah. Like you're not going to make it. <laughs> and so she also lives closer to the hospital and everything. And they said, you know, we would prefer for you to stay at a hotel um, as the weeks get closer. Yeah. That's just and up- uprooting your I life said, okay. completely. Wow. That's right. hard, yeah. Right. Um, it, it was right around the time that my daughter was actually going to start oh. school, first grade. But the first oh. week of school. Which is what's happening right now and so and, emotional. I just cried yesterday for my son's yeah. kindergarten assessment. I was like, oh, I know this means nothing. I'm just going to cry anyway. <laughs> I still got a two, two more weeks here for us. But it's always, you know, a, a great moment. It's a great day. Um, the thing is that my my mom was going to come out and help, but I also need to pretty much train her. Uh, she lives, you know, far away. And so I got to get her into the routine, what it's like for my daughter, school, drop off, pick up. I still got my little guy at home. And so I needed more time. That's what it came down to. I, I fully understood. I respected it, but I just needed a, a few more days. And every day yeah. was like, Let's not go into labor today. Can we yeah. make it, you know, past 34? One more day, one more day, right? And so there was this pressure. When is your mom coming? When is your mom coming? Are you going to have some help? Even though I did have, you know, some help in between outsiders. But now I just wanted someone that I really knew that was comfortable with my kids, that my kids were comfortable with. The overnights was really the, the hiccup there. And so my mom did come. I did ask for a few more days because they needed me down at the at the hotel by 34 weeks. And I said, look, can I push it down closer to at least 34 and a half or 35 weeks? I need a couple of days to get my daughter into school, set up my mom, all that jazz. And so everyone agreed. But my doctor kept tabs on me wow. every day, every day. I mean, he was phenomenal. Can doctor. I tell you that the first day I met this man, the first day that we met, he goes, put your cell phone number in my cell phone. Oh, wow. And I was like, wow. And he said, if I don't hear from you once a week, you'll be hearing from me. I said, okay. He goes, if we can't keep this level of communication, I'm not the doctor for you. Wow. I was like, okay. (laughs) And I have to say, I love him. He, He is amazing. And so, we were all in agreement. Okay. You know, when am I moving down? I did go down midweek, but it was still hard. It was hard because I said, I don't know when I'm going to go into labor and I'm still going to need a couple of days thereafter. So how long am I going to be away from my kids? And essentially my husband has to continue his job and I need my mom home with my kids. So I'd stay at the hotel on my own. Um, my intended mother did work and she, and she would be close. And she said, you know, I can also come and spend the time with you and everything. But I was also beginning to be at this emotional place where I said, you know, I I get it. I respect it. Thank you. And I think it's best for me to kind of be on my own. If anything happens, you know, you guys are six minutes away. I will call everyone and anyone, but I I kind of wanted that space. I'll just catch up on podcasts. I said, you know, all my Shutterfly books that I haven't worked on, I'm going to do that. Netflix series. Totally. I just need to be in the AC, on the couch, completely just vegging. And I I went in on a Wednesday night, had a couple appointments in between. By Friday, my blood pressure started rising. That was something that we were monitoring twice a day because they wanted to ensure that I wouldn't get preeclampsia symptoms. And uh, by Saturday, it was rising more than we were all comfortable with. By Sunday morning, doctor's like, that's it. You're coming in today. So that was short-lived at the, at the, at the hotel. Fortunately, my husband had already um, come in to stay with me for the weekend. But pretty much what he did was come in to take me straight to the hospital. And at that point, it was a, a C-section. Both babies had been breached already for the last yeah. three months. And they weren't cooperating. So I was nervous about that. I hadn't had a C-section before. Um, 
But, you know, I think every woman reaches a point in the pregnancy where like, we're done. So as bummed as I was being 35 weeks one day, I was happy that we had gone over the 34 week threshold. And um, the babies were estimated already well over five pounds at that point. And so I said, you know, it's, it's a good time. And so the texts and the phone calls went in. Everybody get ready. We're delivering these babies. I went in at one in the afternoon. By 5.30, we were having a, a C-section. And uh, that went well up until the delivery part, I should say. It was amazing, you know, seeing the babies come out and, and hearing their cries. Was and the, who was in the room with you when you had the C-section? My husband. My husband. Your husband was. Yes. Okay. I. That's a a great point that you bring up. That was also a hard decision, actually, those last weeks, because we were all hoping a natural. It is is for everybody, right? Yes. Yes. And, and we've, we had that tough conversation, my IM and I, because like, who's going to be that support person, right? And as a surrogate, um, I felt between a rock and a hard place. How could I take this moment away from her? Right? This was all about her. This was her babies. Um, and also my husband is my best support person. And, and also, I mean, going back to what you said, you know, that he's very nervous about you having any level of surgery since you already kind of referenced that too. I mean, I'm sure for him, it was very important to be there as well. Yes, it was actually, that was one of the biggest things for him. He said, babe, if God forbid you were to go, my face is the last face you're going to see. <laughs> you know? right. And right. I said, yes, that would be so you know, outside of my kids. Uh, the last face I'd want to see. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> and so, and he's, and he's just been with me um, through so many other things that it just felt so right. And so she and I did have that conversation and she was supportive of it. She's like, look, I get it. Um, I know that it's, it's going to be him, but you know, can, can he record it at least? Like, what could we do? What's permissible? Um, with hospital guidelines. And so my doctor was awesome about it because as one baby would come out, you know, as we were prepping for it, he'd say, Joe, you know, start recording. So we would record the snippet, shut it down, next baby's out, record, and Joe sent her the text messages and everything. So we did the oh, best that we yeah. could in the moment so that it could be as live as possible, right? Um, where surgery's done, I'm, I'm closed up get back to recovery room, but I start experiencing significant blood loss. And at this point, I'm almost kind of loopy also uh, between all the meds. By the way, as I'm laying fully flat, undergoing a C-section, I'm also throwing up because the meds are not agreeing with me. So so I'm going to meet my death because I threw up in my mouth as I'm laying down, (laughs) not for any other reason. But um, at that point, as I'm in the recovery room, Things got pretty intense and I was kind of in and out of consciousness, I want to say, because um, this piece I'm I'm told through my husband and fortunately my doctor did allow him to stay in. But there was a moment in time where there were eight nurses and three doctors in the room and my husband's like, what is going on? Uh, I had an, an immediate blood transfusion of two units. I had an arterial bleed. And they were trying to do everything possible to not have me undergo a hysterectomy. And even though I had the blood transfusion, that didn't seem to be going well. And at that point, my doctor tells me that I need to have an embolization and I have to speak to another doctor. Well, not speak. Another doctor would come in and explain what would happen. You're like, I'm not speaking to anybody right now. Just do. Pretty much. They, they just wanted me to agree. And so that's as much as I spoke. But my husband basically knew everything. And that goes back to the point why I'm grateful that at the end of the day, it was my husband who was the support yeah. person and was there right. from beginning right. to end. Because that day and the days thereafter, he had to make so many decisions for me. Right. Um, that that goes on, to a lot of things like medical power of attorney and things like that and why those absolutely. are really important during these things too. The The irony is that I had a relatively great pregnancy, but things started actually taking a turn for me thereafter. 
And so um, I end up going to the embolization, which was almost a, a two-hour procedure. They basically went um, through my leg and, and my thigh by my femur and pumped up some foam is what I'm told, basically to try to stop the, the bleeding. And uh, I'm taken off to, you know, postpartum. So I delivered on a Sunday. On Monday, I, I'm somehow awake and, and relatively conscious. I am able to have a meal, but I'm not moving much. And I'm still pretty big. I still look pretty pregnant. And I mean, like I look six months pregnant, not like I just had a baby or two. And I started experiencing the severe, excruciating shoulder pain. And I said, you know, to the nurse and my husband, I can't even move. I can't even lay on my side. And the pain started getting worse and worse to the point where I'm actually screaming. Oh, my God, this, this is awful. And the cramps are crazy. And then I literally start seeing my stomach move like it's a roller coaster. I'm like, that's oh, not wow. normal. <laughs> um, the, the nurses come. They try to get me up to, to use the restroom. They're like, have you had any bodily functions? And I'm like, nope, not at all. Um, not even gas, not even pooping, nothing. I mean, and this is TMI, <laughs> wow. but nothing. And I said, we need yeah. you to, we need you to do this. And I couldn't. And you're like, I would, if I could, believe me. <laughs> pretty much. It took two nurses and my husband just to get me up from the bed because I must've weighed a thousand pounds and I had no strength in my body. As I, as they literally walk me to the restroom, I just start losing all these clots. And there was one so ginormous that the nurse was nervous. And she's like, I got to get a doctor and we have to see this. Wow. And at that point, you know, I'm kind of looking like, what is going on? <laughs> what, why are things taking a turn for the worse? Um, fast forward, that that day they, they pump me up with Dulcolax. They give me enemas. I mean, they do all these things trying to get me going and nothing is working. The pain is getting worse. Tuesday is the worst day of my life. That day they said, this has got to change. And they did more enemas. They did some kind of washes. They gave me seven different types of painkillers that was not working. Well, well painkillers actually stop you from going too. That's the worst part is like you're working against yourself on a lot of those painkillers. It was awful. All it, all it would cause me to do yeah. is actually throw up. And I'm like, I can't keep oh. throwing up because this is really painful. Yeah. And I was in and out of consciousness. Um, at one point, they said, look, you're going to have to self-medicate. We'll bring this thing to you. And I said, absolutely not. Like, nothing is working. I, I do not want to go through this. I don't, I don't want any more painkillers. Just leave me be. They gave me a couple of minutes or however long, because at this point, time span is blurry to me. I remember... Being out of consciousness, but not, I, I don't know how to explain this because I was fully, I was conscious enough to know that there were people in my room. I could almost hear the voices and hear the nurses and my husband was with me literally by my bedside. And um, I also had felt like I was, and, and I'm pausing because this is something that always gets, gets to me. Um, I felt like I was on a whole nother plane field. And, and I was able to think enough to go, is this what it feels like to be on like drugs or on meds? Like, I have no idea. I've never experienced this or where am I? But I was so tired of it all. And I felt I couldn't do anything else. And I didn't want to go through anything more. The pain was more than I could withstand at that point. And I started going through a checklist. What would it look like? What would it feel like? Would I be okay dying? What if it all just stopped right now? Wow. And this is why I say I was able to be conscious enough because I thought about my kids, each one of them. Like I almost went through a checklist and an assessment. And I said, you know, this would be awful. But I know that my husband would be able to to move forward. Like, he'd be able to do it. He'd make sure the kids are taken care of. He'd be taken care of, you know. Um, it's gonna, I'm like, it's going to end right here. Like, the moment I can wake up and say something, if I do, um, that's what I'm going to say. But if 
this is what's happening to me in the state that I'm in. I'm ready to go. Wow. And shortly thereafter, I, I came back to consciousness, I suppose, because I turn over to my right and my husband's pretty much laying like his head is over his crossed arms right next to my head as if he'd been staying there for however long while I was sleeping, I suppose. And I start getting teary eyed and I look at him and I go, babe, I'm done. Like, I'm ready to go. I I will admit we we need to take a break because this is the point when we were recording that I started to sob. So all of you go take a break, take a little cleanser, go think some happy thoughts because we will come back next week with part two to talk about the rest of uh, Michelle's story because it was incredible. And another opportunity to thank our our team. So thank you to Chris at Work at Bird Studios. Thank you to Amanda, to Ashley, to Tyler, to Lexi, to all those wonderful people that um, are part of our team yes. getting these stories out there yes. for you to listen to. All right. We'll be back next week with the, with the conclusion. 